Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are going to be finishing up in one sense uh, today, but we'll continue, as I mentioned, next week for one more week. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Your Word, indeed, as we just sang, is so clear and true. And we ask, Father, as we are gathered in Jesus' name before you, that you would indeed, through your word, renew our minds to trust in you. And Father, give to us the bread of life for the sole purpose that we may know the risen Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Just a little over 23 years ago, in April 1994, I received a phone call from one of my brothers. It was on a Wednesday afternoon, but I remember it like it was yesterday. The conversation started with these words, Lee, you need to come home now. Our father is dying. I remember the sadness, um, not at the moment of his death at 2 a.m. that Friday morning, not with all the preparations on Friday and Saturday um, for his funeral that would take place on Sunday afternoon, but rather I remember the sadness that came at the time of his burial, at the time when his coffin was lowered into the ground, the top of the concrete vault was placed into position, And shovelfuls of dirt began to fill the hole. Burial, for me, marked a finality. His earthly life was over. You, I'm sure most of us, all of us, have experienced something similar. A time of sadness at someone's death. Indeed, it is right to be sad at death because death is unnatural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet death is common. It is guaranteed to all. For the writer to the letter to the Hebrews said, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Today, we come to another hinge in Mark's gospel. Now, what's a hinge? Children, do you know what a hinge is? It connects two things and allows them to to, um, turn in relationship with each other. Now, the first hinge in Mark's gospel, I think everyone will remember, was Peter's confession. In chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter confessed that you are the Christ. It was the hinge on which the gospel of Mark turned from primarily who is Jesus to what did Jesus come to do? Because after that, confession was the call to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow Jesus. Well, today is hinge number two. All the way at the end of Mark's gospel, it's Jesus' burial. It's a hinge in that it connects his death with his resurrection. We read about Jesus' death and resurrection in the Bible, in creeds, but we also 
read about the burial of Jesus. It's in our creeds, in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. In the Nicene Creed, he suffered and was buried. Now, in one sense, it could be seen, I believe, and said that the burial of Jesus really is the hinge on which salvation swings. We've come to the end of Mark's gospel. He's been writing it probably from Rome to Rome in the mid-60s of the first century. We've been looking at Jesus according to the Bible, an exposition of the gospel of Mark. And one of the reasons we chose Mark's gospel was it was the shortest, 16 chapters. We believe primarily to be a collection of Peter's sermons that, that Mark, or Peter's recollections of the life and ministry of Jesus that Mark uh, put down and, and put together in this docudrama of Jesus' life. It's the shortest, 16 chapters long. And we've been thinking also as we've been going about the shortest catechism, always asking ourselves and hopefully answering the question, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, I want you to all take a look at your Bibles in chapter 16. You'll notice the end of Mark. After verse 8, you may see something in your Bibles like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Well, what about these verses at the end? Well, there are about 5,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts out there. We don't have the original uh, written in Greek on the papyrus, but we've got 5,000 manuscripts, copies of coming from that original. And the largest textual problem in the whole New Testament is right here at the ending of Mark. And you'll notice some of the earliest manuscripts, again, do not include these verses 9 through 20. Now, if, as many scholars generally agree, the shorter ending, that is verse 8, and the longer ending, that is verses 9 through 20, um, are not authentic or original, then the question remains, how did Mark originally end? Is Mark 16, verse 8, the intended ending of the gospel, or has the original ending been lost? Well, a good case can be made either way, I believe. But after studying this issue for several days, I believe it ends intentionally with verse 8, as I hope we will see. It's an abrupt ending, to be sure. Then again, if Mark's original ending was somehow lost, then it was for God's sovereign purposes that it was lost and did not remain and transmitted to us today. Well, when we last left off, Last week, it was with the death of Jesus. Remember, we had seen his suffering at the hands of his friends, at the hands of his enemies, and last week, at the hands of his father, his death on the cross. Well, in today's text, Mark will tell us about Jesus' burial and his resurrection. And to the very end of the gospel, Mark is concerned with providing for his reader, for us, an answer to the question as to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And in our text today, we'll see that Jesus, first of all, was dead and buried. And second of all, that Jesus is alive and well. And third and finally, Jesus, that risen Christ, 
offers grace to sinners. Let's take a look first at Jesus was dead and buried, and I'll read verses 40 through 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Well, why on earth so many verses devoted to his burial? These verses are obviously longer than John 3.16, longer than the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. In these verses, we see Jesus not mostly dead. In the words of Miracle Max of the Princess Bride fame, but completely and unquestionably dead. There is an apologetic, a defense of the faith value in all of the details here. Here is careful evidence marshaled that Jesus, in fact, did die. You know, we're often rightly wanting to marshal evidence for the resurrection, but here Mark is marshaling evidence for his death. He really did die. The whole burial account that we just read is a way to certify that Jesus was really dead. It's the medical examiner, as it were, in the form of Pilate and the centurion. Multiple experts and multiple witnesses. And we've already seen two witnesses Pilate and the centurion. But here in the burial account, two more appear. First, Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea appears. Well, what is his significance? His request to take the body of Jesus down from the cross and bury it amounts to a confession of his commitment to the condemned and crucified Jesus. Here, Mark is presenting to us another model disciple. He's waiting for the kingdom of God, which is Mark's way of saying he's following Jesus. He's courageous. Instead of being left on the cross to rot or be thrown into a ditch, which was the custom of a Roman crucifixion. You think crucifixion is bad, and indeed it's drug out over days usually, but here... Jesus, when the work is finished, when he's bearing the wrath of God, he, as we heard last week, chooses, as it were, to die. The work is complete. He's bearing the wrath of God. 
Usually, that common criminal that was executed on the cross, what happened to his body? It was thrown into a ditch to rot. But here, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, the same body that had condemned Jesus to death, and probably he was not one of them, but kind of maybe abstained from the vote, or maybe backed out of the room. Here, he is publicly declaring his allegiance to Jesus. And he's affording him an honorable burial. Because other gospel accounts talk about Joseph being a rich man, and this was not your run-of-the-mill tomb. This was an exquisite tomb. Here, Jesus, this supposed condemned criminal, is being afforded an honorable burial. What's Mark doing? He's hinting. He's hinting at the turn of events to come. Not only is Joseph there as a witness, but the women are there. Notice the sandwich Mark provides of the women in verses 40 and 41. Then the women show back up in verse 47. And then they're in the first eight verses of chapter 16. The women are at the cross. The women are at his burial. And the women, we will see, are at the empty tomb. I saw uh, on the news um, of our president being in Saudi Arabia, I believe, and they were commenting on how in Saudi Arabia women can't drive, and they even profiled that women can't use the men's entrance into McDonald's. Only men go in this door, but but children and women go in the family door. In Jewish society of the first century, women were afforded little to no respect, especially in a public testimony. Their witness, their testimony would not be considered reliable, no value. And yet here in all four Gospels, the testimony of women is front and center. Christianity is the world religion that elevates women to their rightful standing as created in the image of God. Don't ever let someone try to tell you otherwise. Here is their testimony. The women are faithful to Jesus in his life and in his death. They did not run away. All the disciples, the soon-to-be apostles, they split. The women stayed. They did not run away. If this is made up, you would not have women be witnesses to his death, burial, and resurrection. Why does Mark write this? Because it actually happened. He's recording history. Mark lets us know with absolute certainty that Jesus was indeed dead and buried. And yet the story does not end, of course, with death, for Mark along with Matthew, Luke, and John, goes on to let the reader know that Jesus rose from the dead and is now alive and well. Join with me now as I read the first eight verses, or actually the eight verses of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices 
so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What we see in this account of the resurrection is that the women are surprised. Despite the the times, the three times in particular, that Jesus predicted this very thing, his resurrection was unexpected, completely unexpected. You often, as one of my Navy bosses says, you often don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. And this is surely the case. They did not get what they expected. They expected to anoint his body a couple of days late for burial. They did not expect his body to be gone. They did not expect him to be risen from the dead. They encounter a problem, a stone. However, it had been rolled away. And more amazing than that, the body is nowhere to be found. Because what they have encountered is a power that is supernatural. The movement of the stone, the presence of an angel, the other gospel writers clearly identify this man as an angelic being. And here we see God often uses visible means to reveal himself and his ways. The announcement of the angel explains and interprets the absence of Jesus' body. The resurrection is the reason. In verse 6, Mark stresses the identity of the risen one with the crucified one. It was interesting, in looking at the original language, two words are back to back. Crucified and risen. No space. Crucified and risen. If the angel was speaking French, he would say something like this at this time. Leroy et mort, vive Leroy. If he was speaking in London, England, he might have said this. The king is dead. Long live the king. Because it's an announcement of a monarch who has just died. The king is dead. The monarch has died. Long live the king. And it refers to the heir who immediately succeeds to a throne upon the death of the preceding monarch. There's a transfer of sovereignty occurring instantaneously at the moment of death. The announcement the angel is saying is the king was dead, but the king is alive again. Long live the king. The women are shocked. Notice, 
They're alarmed. And what does he say? Do not be alarmed. They are trembling. They are astonished. And they are afraid. And in Mark's gospel, as we've seen, fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. We saw that already when Jesus stilled the storm. The disciples were afraid. When the demoniac was healed by Jesus, the people are afraid. The women's reaction to this appearance of the divine involves a typical combination of amazement, awe, and fright. But the angel reassures them, do not be alarmed. But notice that the angel also commands them, come and see and go and tell. The importance of the resurrection. Nothing reveals the power of God as does the resurrection. Why? Because no matter what man has done, even here in 2017, man is not able to conquer death. Man is powerless when it comes to death. Oh yes, we can delay it. Yes, we can, through modern medicine, keep it a few more years away. But no man can conquer death. Death And here is the raw, the raw power of God seen in the resurrection. It's the same power that God demonstrates in conversion from someone being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Remember the sermon the Sunday after Easter, resurrection power in the battle. Where in Ephesians 6 we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The strength of His might is resurrection power. And these women are witnesses. The first witnesses of the resurrection power. Jesus was dead and buried. Jesus is now alive and well. And it is through His death and resurrection that Jesus offers grace to sinners. Now where do we see that in our text? Am I just making this up? Did I need a third point to cheer us up? Jesus offers grace to sinners. Look with me at verse 7. But go tell His disciples and Peter. And Peter. And Peter. You remember Peter, don't you? It's been a while. We saw him last in chapter 14, verse 72. And when we saw him last, what was he doing? He had broken down and was weeping. And Peter. These are perhaps two of the most eloquent words in all of Mark's gospel. Because they show that Jesus' death was sufficient even for the sin of rejecting him. Deserting him denying Him. We last saw Peter weeping bitterly and with good reason. The angel's promise is first and foremost to those who had failed, all 11 disciples. Salvation is by grace, Mark wants to see, since not only the despised outsiders, Gentiles, are welcomed, but also failed insiders are too. 
As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the passage in Romans 15 that you may have gotten tired of me quoting every week. What are we doing here on the Lord's Day? We are gathering to worship God with one voice and to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. My friends, the doors of this church are wide open to people who have grown up in the church, i.e. Jews, people who are coming from the most pagan background you can imagine, i.e. the Gentiles. The cross of Christ welcomes Jew and Gentile. It makes them one person. That's why we can welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Because whether we're a despised outsider or a failed insider, the welcome is extended to all. There is special assurance and comfort given to Peter because he was especially guilty of abandoning and denying Jesus. The resurrection then, as we see, is all about forgiveness. The resurrection, first of all, is proof that Jesus' death has made satisfaction for our sins, but also the resurrection means specific personal forgiveness and and reconciliation. Because the message of the cross, which takes into account Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, that message is personal. Jesus knows Peter, and yet Jesus will forgive Peter and and restore Peter. Because just like Peter, we all struggle, we all fail miserably, we all sin in many ways. Let's go back to what Peter did. How do we deny Jesus? How do we fail Jesus? Remember that comment that every sin of a Christian is a personal betrayal? Why? Because we know the Lord. We know His love. We know His care. We know His faithfulness. We know His compassion. And yet, through various sins... We betray Him. And He welcomes us and restores us when we come back to Him. Because the message of the cross here is that God's grace is greater than your sin. That His restoration is greater than your fall. At the heart of this upside down nature of of the gospel is the cross. Remember that Roman instrument of torture. That Jewish instrument display of being cursed by God. The cross, though planted, as it were, right side up, really represents the upside down nature of the gospel. Because the gospel contradicts the world's view that salvation is by effort and works and achievement. The death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that Christianity is utterly unique. It's truly one of a kind. And that expression, I mean, I am guilty of using unique wrongly. How about you all, right? You know what unique means? One of a kind. The death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that Christianity truly is one of a kind. Other religions are primary philosophies, sets of teaching about how to live. Christianity is primarily an announcement of events in history, things that happened, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. 
Because it's not the following of the teaching that saves us, but it's the miraculous events in the life of Jesus that actually save us. If you take away the the historical events of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you take away the heart of Christianity. And it becomes just another philosophy that saves you through your own self-effort. Look with me again at the conclusion of Mark, verse 8. Now, whether verse 8 is the intended finish or not, the gospel of Mark remains unfinished. What? What What on earth are you talking about? Well, you may be asking that. What are you talking about? Well, let me explain. Remember the catechism, the shortest catechism. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Mark's abrupt ending. Victory is won. There are 11 forgiven sinners entrusted with the gospel. That confronts us. The women were told to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were told to go tell others the news. And through the rest of the New Testament witness, we know we know that they indeed did believe and they indeed did go and tell others the news of which you and I sitting here are some of the recipients of that announcement. And so the question is, as Mark just drops off at verse 8, the question is this, what will you do with the news? Will you ignore it? It couldn't be true. There must be some other explanation. Or will you believe it and, as it were, obey it, thereby finishing the story for yourselves? In other words, has the good news of the gospel, has this announcement that the crucified one is the risen one and he has gone ahead of you and he will meet you, has that good news become personal Is it not something that's just out there, but it's something in here? Let me return for just a moment to where we began. With death and a burial. Because between now and when Jesus Christ returns, a death and a burial await us all. At my father's burial, I was sad and I was grieved, but I did not grieve without hope. Why? Because I knew that for all of my father's skill as a family physician, for all his upstanding morality and unquestionable integrity, for his out front as well as behind the scenes community service, my father did not trust in himself when it came to his relationship with God. Rather, he trusted in something outside of himself. More accurately, he trusted in another person. He trusted in the one who lived the perfect life of obedience to God that he should live. And he trusted in the one who died the death for the life of disobedience to God that he did live. He trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. He had responded to Jesus' call recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. He had believed that whoever comes to Jesus 
would never be cast out by Jesus. And so the source of my hope at the time of my father's death was not found in my knowledge of how good of a life he had lived. Rather, it was found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what about you? What about your friends and loved ones at the time of your death? To be sure, they will be sad and they will grieve, but will they grieve with hope? Based on what you've said and done in your life, what will they conclude about your relationship with God? Well, let's finish up by getting even more personal. What will be your source of hope as you approach the time of your death, which, believe it or not, is closer now than when this worship service began. What are you confessing right now at this very moment regarding your relationship with God? The abrupt way the Gospel of Mark ends forces each of us to ask a question. Do I believe the good news of the announcement that Jesus, the one who was dead and buried, yet is now alive and well, do I believe that he offers grace to sinners? May God be pleased to give all of us the faith to believe that Jesus, the one who was crucified, has risen and that he has gone on before us to prepare a place for us. And there we will see him just as he told us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the salvation presented in Mark's gospel is indeed the good news of the gospel. That salvation comes from outside of us in another person the one who lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus, through his death, took the curse that we deserve, and through his resurrection, we get the blessing that he deserves. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to enable this abrupt ending of Mark's gospel to fuel our growing desire to believe you and your word and to do what you ask us to do, knowing that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to grant us and grow us in faith in Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.